This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Do you find it challenging working on your collector car? Advantage Lifts has the solution for you with their selection of two and four post lifts. Advantage's two post lifts provide an unparalleled amount of versatility. Each wheel can spin freely and be worked on individually, and you'll have full access to those hard-to-reach parts of the undercarriage. And best of all, Advantage's two post lifts are ready to ship now. Get $100 off by using code TCCP for the Collector Car Podcast. Again, that's TCCP. You can find your perfect Advantage lift by calling 763-300-5730. That's 763-300-5730. And don't forget to use the promotional coupon code TCCP. CCP. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Okay, welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg Stanley, as always, with you every week to talk about cool collector cars. Okay, as you know, I did do a nice deep dive into Jay Leno's collection, and this is one of the follow-up episodes, so we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we do, I do want to provide you with just a few updates. As I've mentioned before, uh, I want you to check out my YouTube channel. So I'm putting a big effort into this this year. It's all sorts of cool car content, content. Uh, stuff's posted daily. I have some, 20, some less than one minute long shorts posted daily. Uh, these include keep, cash, and collect. So that's kind of like buy, sell, hold, but keep, cash, and collect. Uh, I also have some market valuations that will start popping up there soon. It will be uh, 50 seconds. Here's the car at a car show, but then I'll pop in with the valuations for uh, one-year market trend, three-year market trend, or five-year market trend as well as some other fun stuff. And I'm also doing some virtual car shows. So if you cannot attend, you can attend some virtually through my YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out. I will have some collector interviews as well as some museum tours. I do have the Saratoga Auto, Auto Museum coming up here shortly. And a few other items that are coming up soon. I toured the Blackhawk collection in California. That's one I've been wanting to get to forever and finally got there and was able to do a quick walk around. I also attended the Hillsborough Concourse Elegance, which is actually the longest running concourse in the country, which is truly amazing and really special. And it has some really quality cars there. Uh, I will review some Corvettes and Cobras from Virilio Motor Car Sales in upstate New York and historic Shelbys as well as historic race cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speed 1A. So that's just a few things I am reviewing and sharing with you over the coming weeks on the YouTube channel. And I will also repost Wayne Carini's Ultimate Garage, which in which he picked his 10 favorite cars of all time, and I will include some cool pictures of that. That should post by this coming Monday as you hear this. Now, a couple of future podcast episodes that are coming up, 100 Cars That Changed the World. So I've been doing this for a little while, taking a buy out of a couple decades at a time. And this is the last episode coming up. It's from the 1970s until today. Some interesting cars that popped in on that list. And then I will have collector car estate planning as well. There's a lot of folks that, you know, when 
they pass away, they leave the burden of their collector cars with their family, which is so unfortunate. So I will have a professional on the podcast to talk about the options that are available to you if you have a collected a collection of collector cars. That way you don't have to worry about it in the future. You'll know everything is handled according to your wishes. And then, of course, the big Monterey Car Week is coming up soon, and I will have a pretty big episode with numerous guests talking about the incredible cars that are coming to Monterey Car Week. All right, so let's get to Jay's collection here. This time we're diving deep into the performance and racing cars in his collection. Now, as a reminder, I previously provided an overview of Jay's entire collection a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago called a deep dive into Jay Leno's collection and a closer look at his European classics. So that was about four weeks ago. Now, you will find the links to these episodes, if you missed them, in the description of this podcast. For the original deep dive episode, I gave a brief overview of the 184 cars in his collection. Now, if you were really smart and really paying attention, you realize that in my overview, I said 183 cars. Well, that was because there was a new car that popped on his radar. He posted his Cadillac CTSV like four weeks ago on his YouTube channel. I did not know he had that car until that video was posted. Super cool car. I talked about it last week, and I will talk about I will talk about it again this week. Okay, so like I said, this is the second of four additional follow-up episodes in which I go a little deeper into the collection, and I review a few specific cars. Now, of Jay's 184 cars in his collection, I would identify approximately 158 of those cars as performance and or racing cars. Now, he doesn't really have a lot of racing cars. There are a few that have some type of racing history or were designed for the racetrack. Now, if you take if you do the math here real quick, 158 cars, total of 184 cars in his collection, about 93% of his collection you could quantify as performance and or racing. So even though Jay has some plain Jane four-door cars in his collection, his tastes definitely lean towards performance. For this episode, I've picked 16 cars to review, including the recent market trends from Haggerty and average value if applicable. As you can imagine, Jay has some pretty unique one-off cars, and there's no price guide for them. I did give my best shot as far as what I would ballpark the cars at in a normal retail setting, not with the Jay Leno tags. <laughs> now, all of the links to Jay's videos where I was able to find some information on these cars, either done by him or by someone else, such as my classic car uh, TV show, they are available via the show notes, which you can find at thecollectorcarpodcast.com under the blog section. So go there if you want to see these videos I am talking about. So the first car I'm going to mention, I'm going from oldest to newest. Now this one's interesting because it's listed as a 1908-1921 Mercedes-Benz Rabbit 1 race car. The reason being is I believe the chassis was originally built in 1908, and it was made into a race car in 1921. Now, this information is from Jay's video on his YouTube channel. Uh, the first thing you'll notice when he talks, he talks about it's a chain drive, and you can hear them rattling, and it sounds like Marley's Ghost. Now, if you don't get that reference, that's from the movie A Christmas Carol. Marley the Ghost would rattle his chains, chains to wake up Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, this car was raced, like I said, and built in 1921, and it has a 1914 Benz 235 horsepower aero engine. 
and it ran 113 miles per hour at Brooklands in period. Now there's, I don't have any record of another one of these existing currently. It's really hard to come up with prices, especially when you're talking World War One Benz aero engines, especially when you're talking 1914 Benz aero engines. Those are really hard to find. So if I were to put a price tag on this car, I would go pretty strong. I'm just thinking, you know what, you got a World War One aero engine put into a historic car for racing that has race history. Uh, I don't know. I would probably put this in the 650 to 750 range. That is a broad guess on my part. All right, the next one, getting a couple years newer, the 1913 Mercer Raceabout. Now, again, this information is from Jay's video. Uh, let's see. At one time, the Mercer Raceabout was selling for more than a Duesenberg. That's amazing when you think about it. And it was once the most expensive car ever sold for $45,000 in the 1960s. So today, the most expensive car ever sold was Arm Sotheby's uh, Mercedes race car for $142 million. Now put that in perspective of this car in the 1960s for $45,000. Not this particular car, but one like it. Now there's thought to only be 20 or 25 original Mercers remaining. These cars were built in Trenton, New Jersey, and it's rumored that, that most were painted yellow and black because those were the colors of Princeton, which was obviously a local university near Trenton, New Jersey. They were hoping that they would sell them to the college graduates as soon as they got a good job. All right, the last one I found sold was sold at Bonhams at Amelia Island a couple years ago for $900,000. So very pricey on these Mercer Raceabouts, but they're iconic and you cannot find another one. Very few of them remain. All right, next one is actually the Mercer's uh, competition, a 1918 Stutz Bearcat. Now, this information is from the HenryFord.com. The Stutz Bearcat, introduced in 1912, was perhaps America's first true sports car. Stutz individually tested each Bearcat at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and many were raced with great success. Stops, Stutz dropped the model in 1924, only to bring it back in 1931. Interesting hoping the beloved name might improve sales during the Great Depression. But Stutz ended automobile production in 1935. Now, these are interesting because the transmission is in the back for better weight distribution. And Jay bought his from a 94-year-old recluse who did not even have running water. And it turns out this guy did not trust the banks at the time because of the Great Depression. And he had $900,000 in gold bullion in the floor when I guess Jay went to go buy the car. Now, this owner that he bought it from, the 94-year-old, was reported to be the first person to fly a gyrocopter at the White House. His particular Bearcat had been in a lean-to shed for 50 years. Now, the approximate value on this car is $250,000. All right, next I have a 1928 Bugatti Type 37A. Now, this description is from Orange Sotheby's. This is one, all of Jay's Bugattis are kind of hard to nail down. He does have a Persang 57, Type 57 replica. Um, not sure how many of the ones are real, how many are not. They're all very cool, but it's a little hard to nail down exactly what is in his collection here. All right, from RM Sotheby's. The Bugatti Type 37 was introduced in November 1925, and it proved to be one of the most iconic and instant, instantly re recognizable racing cars to ever leave Bugatti's facilities. Like its predecessor to Type 35, 
The Type 37 provided all of the performance that one desired, yet it also offered an excellent level of practicality for road-based events and rallies. However, as opposed to the as opposed to the eight-cylinder unit found in the Type 35, the Type 37 was fitted with a four-cylinder engine. This inline four-cylinder engine was considered by many to be more reliable, yet it also provided just as much excitement to the individual behind the wheel as its bigger brother did. Not only could the Type 37 be driven hard all day long, but it also provide, proved reliable enough to be driven home at the end of the day under its own power, even with an additional passenger riding along. All right, about 18 months after the Type 37's initial introduction, Bugatti introduced the Type 37A, which is what Jay has, with the hallmark improvement being a Roots-type supercharger. Performance was drastically improved over, over the naturally aspirated model, and the car was capable of reaching a top speed of 122 miles an hour. The car proved to be quite successful in its halt action in some of the world's greatest endurance races at the time, including the Milia Milia, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and the Targa Florio. While Bugatti produced a total of 286 Type 37s, only, only 76 were supercharged from the factory. Now, the average value on this, I put it at a million dollars because that's where I could find some general comps for this car, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was a little bit higher. All right, the next one is probably one of my favorite cars in Jay's collection because it's so nuts. It's his famous tank car, also known as the 1930 Blastoline Special Twin Turbo. Now, this information is from My Classic Car, one of my favorite TV shows. I haven't seen Dennis around lately, so hopefully he's doing okay. But this is from probably, I don't know, the early 90s if you YouTube, if you Google this and find the video on YouTube. This big custom-built tank car was fitted with a, PAX, a patent tank engine, V12, 990 horsepower, 1,600 pound-feet of torque. The car weighed 9,500 pounds, and it was 198 inches long. The wheelbase was 198 inches, which is 16.5 feet long. That was built by the Blasoline Brothers as a show car, and it was not originally street legal until Jay went to the headaches to make it so. It's an all-aluminum body. Putting a price tag on this one's really, really hard. I put it at $1.5 million. It's just a one-off, custom, iconic. I don't know that, you know, you could repeat it, yes, but it wouldn't be nearly as iconic as this one. All right, the next car is the 1932 Duesenberg SJ Murphy Convertible. This is another one that I cannot find a video specifically on this car uh, for Jay, uh, but he, he does mention the car numerous times as he's, focusing on and featuring other Duesenbergs within the collection. Now this description is from Concept Cars with a Z. And this is about, this is related to the J, not the SJ. So the S is for supercharged. It's more powerful, has more horsepower, and it's worth more. So everything I'm, I'm about to tell you, you need to ramp it up for the SJ. The Duesenberg J's engine produced 265 horsepower, enough to propel the car to speeds in excess of 110 miles an hour. It produced 374 foot-pounds of torque at just 2,000 RPM. The chassis became a favorite for coach builders, creating custom one-off cars. Now, if you go back to my podcast episode, The Fastest Car from Every Decade, 
the Duesenberg was the only car that was the fastest car for multiple decades. It was the fastest car for 19, the 1920s and the fastest car for the 1930s, which is a little bit interesting because the cars were all built in 1929, but then they were titled when they were sold. So the car that was built in 1929 might show up as a 1932, even though it was built a couple years, years earlier. But it is the only time, at least since automobiles have been introduced, that the same car repeated the top speed to fastest car for two consecutive decades. All right, Murphy, the coach builder, like some of the other coach builders of the day, was a popular choice for Duesenberg owners. Known for their simple and refined good taste, the Walter M. Murphy Body Company in Pasadena, California, would produce a significant amount of bodies for several of the luxury manufacturers. In the 1920s, the cars came as a rolling chassis, and the owner sought out a coach builder, in this case, Murphy. The Model J Duesenberg was regarded as the most outstanding, prestigious motor car of the day, and it was by far the most expensive car in America. Depending on the coach work, the price could reach $20,000, which was a staggering sum at the time when a new home could be purchased for under $10,000, and a new family car typically cost around $500. Let's see. All right. I do have the valuation numbers on this. This is, again, for the J, not the SJ. The one-year change of 55.6%, the three-year change of 55.6%, and the five-year change of 55.6%. So that just tells you the car made a massive jump in the last year, which also impacted the three-year change and the five-year change. I know at RM Sotheby's, we've had a couple big ones across the block. We had one, I think it was at Amelia Island, that actually went a million dollars higher than high estimate, which was nuts. So for the J, the average value in number three condition is $1 million. All right, the next one is one of my favorite cars. I think I just said that. But again, one of my favorite cars in Jay's collection, the 1953 Cunningham C3. Now this is from Haggerty. All Cunninghams are known to exist. Everybody knows where they are. There weren't that many of them. Uh, I go a little bit more in depth on this one because it's such a cool car. Although Cunningham as a manufacturer is mostly associated with Briggs Cunningham's admirable but ultimately unsuccessful effort to win at Le Mans with an American car, a handful of automobiles rolled out of his West Palm Beach, Florida factory intended for street use. New rules in 1952 dictated that Cunningham had to build at least 25 cars in order to enter Le Mans as a manufacturer and a road-going product could in theory actually bring in some money for the company which was being financed by Cunningham himself. All right, the resulting road car will be dubbed the Cunningham C3. The very first car called C3 was built entirely at the shop in West Palm Beach. It was essentially a C1 competition car with a hard top. The car lacked the refinement that Briggs Cunningham wanted for a road car. It wasn't particularly attractive, and it cost $15,000 to build. In the early 1950s, even the well-heeled would balk at such a price tag. What Cunningham then decided to do was to fit bodywork onto ladder-type tubular chassis derived from the C2, a period advertisement describing the pairing as combining American engineering with Italian artistry. And the C3 was indeed beautiful in both coupe and cabriolet forms. Now, about 30 examples of the C3 were built. Uh, let's see, with two-thirds of them coupes and one-third of them cabriolets, the number was enough to allow Cunningham to keep running at Le Mans but it also caught the attention of the IRS. At the time, the IRS allowed companies like Cunningham a period of five years to become profitable, or it would be taxed as a non-deductible hobby. Nowadays, I think it's two years. 
Given the low volume and high price of the C3, as well as the lack of other real products for sale, there was no way Cunningham would be a profitable car maker. All right, let's see. James Cunningham has the original engine, and he put in a five-speed transmission because he stated in his video that the original two-speed automatic was horrible. <laughs> he still has it, though. So originality is key. I do remember it took a long time to restore this car. You can actually see numerous videos of it on the uh, restoration blog update in different uh, states of restoration. Um, you can even see how they had to, I believe, custom make the grill, which is like a lot of work. Uh, like I said, all Cunninghams are documented and known. All right, I do have some valuation trends on this. The one-year change is up 4.5%, as well as the three-year and the five-year. So it's jumped up 4.5% in the last year. Uh, we did have one at our, I think it was Amelia Island again. It was one of the five, I believe, convertibles ever built, uh, and that one sold. That was really a beautiful car. So the average value in number three condition is $772,000. All right, next is one of the uh, iconic blue chip cars, the 1955 Mercedes 300SL Gullwing. Now, this is from Haggerty. In most cases, a road car comes first and a racing version follows. But, but for the Mercedes-Benz 300SL, the radical Gullwing door coupe that hit the market in 1954 was directly derived from the sports racing car that won the Carrera Panamericana and the 24-hour Le Mans in 1952. So that's cool. You had the racing car first. Hey, let's go make a street version. The road car that followed retained the racing version's strong tubular frame with high sails necessitating the gullwing doors and featured fully independent suspension and a fuel-injected version of Mercedes-Benz's 3,000cc single overhead camshaft engine. The engine was rated at 215 horsepower and would propel the car up to speeds upwards of 160 miles an hour, making it one of the fastest production cars in the world upon introduction. All right, let's see. There were 29 aluminum coupes. We sold one at Scottsdale, and we have another one coming up at Monterey. Let's see, fast, beautiful, and very expensive at nearly $9,000. Only 1,400 of the exclusive coupes were built between 1954 and 1957 when the model was superseded by the 300SL Roadster. Now, Jay's is interesting. His was found in a shipping container with no engine or transmission. It is, I believe it's unrestored with original paint. So you can see the pictures now if you're watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, there's some surface rust. There's paint chips. There's a racing number on the side that looks like it's been half peeled off. Uh, he, Jay often mentioned that it is fun to drive as he does not need to worry about what it's like at cruising. So he doesn't have to worry about door dings, you know, scrapes, that kind of stuff. Uh, he also mentioned that, you know, he worked for a European car specialist and they had a lot of Mercedes, but he never took to the goal wing. He just thought it would be heavy and overbearing and not fun to drive. And then he actually drove one and he really, really enjoyed it. All right, these have been on a tear lately. The latest one year, it's up 60%. Three years, up 71.4%. And five years, again, up 60%. Average value in number three condition is $1.4 That used to be the high water mark about three years ago. Now it's for number three cars. All right, the next one, the 1965 Ford Mustang Shelby GT350. Now this one is one he has never had on his YouTube channel. It has been featured on uh, CNBC as a little commercial, which is where I, I did the screen grabs if you're looking at uh, this on my YouTube channel. 
but he hasn't ever focused on it, which I wish he would. I know it's just a basic, you know, GT350, but it'd be cool to hear his story about his car. All right, by 1965, Carroll Shelby had already established himself and his name as the de facto American performance brand with cars like the 289 and 427 Cobra regularly trouncing the competition on tracks and at stoplights around the world. So he turned his attention to the Ford Mustang. Ford wanted to make its already popular pony car into a fire breather, and Shelby did just that. He started with a white 2 plus 2 fastback, fitted with the high-performance 289 V8 rated at 271 horsepower, that's the K-code engine, then massaged them with an aluminum high-rise intake manifold, poly four-barrel carburetor, tri-wide headers, and a glass-packed dual exhaust system, which exited just in front of the rear wheels to produce 306 horsepower, 329 pound-feet of torque. A BorgWarner four-speed put that power to the rear wheels, and the 2,800-pound car could sprint to 60 miles an hour in about 6.5 seconds, which today sounds slow as molasses, but back then it was really fast, with a top end of 126 miles an hour. Rear seats were replaced with a fiberglass shelf, and all GT350s were fitted with fiberglass hoods and blue rocker panel stripes. Thick racing stripes down the center of the body were optional, as were Krager mag wheels. I love this, Krager's. All right, like I said, Jay has never done a video on this one, which kills me, but that's okay. All right, the value trends, latest one year up 3.1%, latest three years up 15.4%, and latest five years up 13.2%. The average value in number three condition, this surprised me, $407,000. Now keep in mind, the valuations on Haggerty are probably about, they're full retail. So if I were to get my car insured with Haggerty, which it is currently, uh, I would knock it down 15 to 20% to get a more realistic value for your car. All right, the next one is another Ford, a 1966 Ford Galaxy 507 liter modified coupe. Now, this is from Haggerty. The 1965 Ford line was advertised as the newest since 1949. They were indeed all new cars with new bodies, new perimeter frames, new technology, including slightly curved side glass, new fashionable boxy styling and vertical headlamps, and new small block 289 V8 engines available. The big 427 FE blocks maxed out at 425 horsepower, and that was considered enough for those who wanted to go very fast. All right, a new Galaxy 507 liter, this is what Jay has, two-door hardtop, was introduced as a performance version, including a cheaper-to-build 428 big block with 345 horsepower. So Jay has the 428, not the 427. The car featured a sports steering wheel of simulated English walnut. So if it's, it's fake, why'd you want to make it look like it's English? Anyways, bucket seats, a floor shifter, low restriction exhaust, and non-silenced air cleaner, whatever that means, as well as new power front disc brakes. 1966 saw the Galaxy line trident into three directions, luxury, super luxury, and luxury sports. Now, this was the only year that the 7 liter was available as a standalone model. Apparently, I guess you could get that engine option later on. Now, Jay's has an aftermarket huge, I forgot the cubic inches, over 500 cubic inch engine, but he kept it looking pretty stock. He has American five-spoke racing mag wheels on it, which looks really good. Again, this is one that he has had in a lot of the previous restoration blogs because it took a while to get it fixed, and he had an overheating issue. Uh, but beautiful, beautiful car, and it was 
really cool, the story he told about it. So just kind of an overview or a recap is back in 1965, 1966, he and his dad and mom went up to the dealership to get a new car. And his dad was not a car guy. And he basically would just grab whatever was on the showroom floor. And in this instance, uh, Jay talked him into ordering a car. And while they were ordering the car, he talked his dad into letting him spec it out. And so he picked the 428 engine. He actually picked, I believe he, he said, either no exhaust or just headers. Uh, anyway, so when the car arrives, uh, the first time his dad starts it up, it just sounds super loud, annoying, like a race car. His dad thought it was broken. He's like, what's going on here? This is the one I ordered. And then the salesman was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Here's, here's what you ordered. And he kind of let it slide because he knew his son had, Jay had gotten him on that one. And then Jay mentioned, you know, I don't know, maybe in the next year or so, he did find a speeding ticket. His dad had hit like 110 miles an hour in the car. So he liked the fact that his dad did enjoy the car. And if I remember right, Jay ended up totaling the car, wrapping it around a tree. Something to that effect. So it was a cool story. So definitely check it out. All right. The one-year change uh, via Haggerty valuation tools up 27.2%. Three-year change basically flat, just up 0.8%, and then the five-year change up 5.6%. And the average value in number three condition is $107,000. All right, we're getting into the exotics now. All right, we've got the 1969 Lamborghini Espada. Now, Jay actually has two of these, one red and one blue. Uh, let's see, this description is from Haggerty. Lamborghini finally offered a proper 4-seat GT as a replacement for, for the 400 GT 2 Plus 2 when the Espada appeared at the Geneva Auto Show in 1968. The new coupe amazed showgoers with its lengthy and low proportions, as well as its likeliness, likeness to two previous Bertone show cars, the Piranha and the ill-fated Marzal that Lamborghini had unveiled a year prior. The new Espada legitimately had room for four occupants, unlike post 2 plus 2s of the day, and it was powered by the familiar 4,000cc Weber carburetor V12 that made 325 horsepower. That's a lot of horsepower back in the day. The package could run a 7-second 0-60 sprint and could cross the continent at 155 miles an hour. In period reviews of the Espada commented, commended it for its interior appointments as well as its independent suspension that made for a very stable platform well into the 130 mile per hour range. That's a perfect conveyance. It was a perfect conveyance for shortening the journey between cities in Europe. All right, they made just over 1,200 of these between 1968 and 1978. There were three series. The first series was 1968 to 1969. Series two cars received interior revisions that eliminated the hexagonal Marzal-type influence of the previous generation. And you could get power steering and air condition as optional equipment. I guess you could not previously. The 4-liter V12 also received a power increase to 350 horsepower. And then the final series, three cars were 1974 to 1978. And just a couple other changes there, but not, nothing too crazy. All right, I did run across one of these in a restoration shop, and it was being totally custom-built. And what was cool is, you, first off, you never see these. Second off, you never see a custom-built one. And this was like a really cool dark metallic green with tan interior. And they were making carbon fiber trim pieces to go on the car. Like, I cannot wait to see this car. 
I'm going to reach out to this person. It's an ex-football player who is now on a bunch of TV shows. Um, see if I can get them on to talk about it. So that would be really cool. All right, the one-year trend, these cars are flat. The three-year trend is up 42.4%, and the five-year trend is up 34.8%. So these peaked a while ago, and they basically got flat in the last year. Average value number three condition is $116,000. All right, we just have a few more to go here. We are in the home stretch, and there's some really interesting cars here. The next one's the 1989 Ford Shogun. Now, this information is from Jay's video. He does have a dedicated video on this car, which is really cool. So this car started as a Ford, Fiat, Ford Festiva with a Ford Taurus SHO show engine in the back, which is where the word Shogun comes from. So these folks custom built these, basically took the front engine out, made it a real wheel drive, rear engine, two-seat car instead of a four-seater. Uh, and Jay added nitro so he could, quote-unquote, get up his driveway. That's the way to sell it to your wife, right? Now, between the Taurus show, uh, which had a really nice Yamaha engine in it, uh, lost a 1,000 pounds. So this Shogun only weighed just under 2,200 pounds, zero to 60 in five seconds. Only seven of these were made, and now we're down to six because one was lost recently in the Colorado fires. And the average value, this one's a tough one because there's only six now in the world. But these are kind of like hot-rodded Econo boxes. So I was thinking kind of like the, I believe it's called the Ford RS200, the rally car. I just kind of looked at it compared to those because they did have street versions. Those were rare. So I would put this somewhere around the 350 to 450,000 range. Even though it's a two-door Econo box, it's uh, just kind of insane. All right, the next one's even smaller. It's a no-door two-seater called the 1993 LCC Rocket. Now, let's see. LCC actually stands for Light Car Company. Uh, Jay said, uh, now you have to picture this. It kind of looks like a coffin that you sit in. And Jay says at the beginning of his video, it's no bigger than a coffin. So when you do crash, they can drop the whole thing in the ground. <laughs> so think, picture a tube with a hole in the front. If you're on our YouTube channel, you can see what it looks like. Uh, you actually, the engine's in the back. It's a 1,000cc Yamaha motorcycle engine, probably from the ZR1 or the Z1, Z1 whatever it's called. R1, from the R1. Uh, red line is 12,500. It's the lightest production car ever built at 770 pounds. It's basically a four-wheel motorcycle. Uh, they only built 49 or 50. They were very expensive at the time, approximately the same price as a new 911 back then. Now, Jay mentions that it's so low, you can almost pass under trucks. Uh, this was Gordon Murray's first car that he produced, and it was the precursor to the McLaren F1. So the lineage is insane. Uh, you can fit two people. You actually have to take the back shell off, and someone can sit behind you, and they can kind of, their legs will kind of straddle you. Uh, Jay mentioned that the tires and brakes last forever because it is so light. And uh, he said it gives you a tremendous sensation of speed because you're so close to the ground. 40 miles per hour feels like 80. 80 miles per hour feels like 160. Um, now, the value for this, this is, again, another really tough one. I ballparked it around 350 to 400 grand. Again, uh, I mean, go find another one. Very impractical. But, you know, it's got such great history. 
related to the McLaren F1, the most iconic supercar ever built. All right, we have got three more here. The next one is a 2009 Corvette ZR1, but this one is serial number 001. This is from Haggerty. By 2009, the Chevrolet Corvette was entering the fifth year of the C6 Generations model run, and it set the performance world ablaze with the announcement of the ZR1. This designation was previously used on special versions of the C3 and C4 Corvettes. The C3 used it as a competition upgrade package, while the C4 ZR1 was a high-performance model featuring a quad-cam engine designed by Lotus. The C6 ZR1 Corvette was a completely different beast, with performance that put America's sports car on par with the world's quickest and most expensive exotic cars. Again, this is another one Jay has not done a video on, but I did grab a, got a screen grab from a Corvette-specific video where he referenced it briefly as it's in the background. Internally named the Blue Devil, an homage to GM CEO Rick Wagoneer's alma mater of Duke, the ZR1 was powered by a new LS9 power plant with a target of 100 horsepower per liter. The supercharged 6.2 liter V8 made 638 horsepower and 595 pound-feet of torque, so it exceeded the 100 horsepower per liter by 18 horsepower. The sprint from 0 to 60 just takes, takes just over 6 seconds, and the C6 ZR1 can hit a top speed of over 200 miles an hour. You can tell the ZR1 apart by its power dome hood, which includes a polycarbonate window so you can see the Eaton Twin Scroll Supercharger. The ZR1 also has a unique full-width spoiler, lower front splitter, added vents, and carbon fiber roof. Now this is in Haggerty's database. One-year change is up 10.4%, three-year change up 46.3%, and the five-year change up 31%. Average value is $69,700. Now this being you know, serial number 001, uh, Rick Hendrick is famous for buying the very first Corvette serial number one for one to three million dollars is that what this one's worth hard to say when rick buys them as part of a non-profit charity auction so there's a massive tax write-off this would be straight cash unless jay decides you know to donate the proceeds in which hendrix would probably snap it up for a million dollars all right two more i'll just touch on this one briefly the 2004 cadillac ctsv i mentioned this one last week in my 19 depreciation proof cars I won't go into detail. I will give you the Haggerty trends. One year up 1.9%, three year up 9.1%, and five year up 13.2%. The average value is $36,700. And I, I did compare this to the CTSV wagon because it is the only instance I'm aware of where a four-door, much less a four-door wagon, is worth significantly more than the two-door sports coupe version. The wagon's up 7%. One year, 16.6. Three year, in five year, uh, it's up 53.8. Compare that to the coupe, up 13.2. And it's worth about 18 grand more in number three condition, which is absolutely nuts. All right, the last car on our list of Jay Leno's performance and racing cars is the 2015 McLaren P1. Again, from Haggerty. At the beginning of the decade, McLaren started to become a volume sports car manufacturer with models like the MP4-12C, that's the worst name in the world, and has since expanded its range to include several distinct but conceptually similar models. Before that, it had been all racing and only racing for McLaren, with the exception of the all-conquering F1 hypercar of the 1990s and the Mercedes-Benz SLR McLaren of the early 2000s. 
Uh, Jay also has one of those SLRs, and he mentions that that is the one supercar that has the most mileage because it's such a joy to drive and easy to drive. Then 10 years after the SLR and 10 years after the introduction of both the Ferrari Enzo and the Porsche Carrera GT, all three companies came out with their latest and greatest. Interestingly, all three of these hypercars of the 2010s utilize gasoline hybrid electric power, whereas most hybrids use electric power with the goal of adding fuel efficiency. These hypercars use it to augment the performance of their already potent and cutting-edge internal combustion engines. Now, for the P1, behind the driver sits a V8 that is the same 3.8-liter displacement as the engines used across the McLaren model range, but it's a different beast in the P1. And with its two turbochargers and dry sump lubrication, it puts out 727 horsepower and 531 pound-feet of torque. The P1's electric motor's purpose is to fill in for the gas engine when it isn't at peak power, such as at lower RPMs or during gear shift. By itself, the electric motors make 176 horsepower, so the total system output is a whopping 903 horsepower. The sprint to zero to 60 takes less than three seconds, and the quarter mile comes in less than 10 seconds. Top speed is limited to 217 miles an hour. That is just crazy. All right. Despite the absolute savage performance and incredible power, the P1 is also drivable around town and will even return 34 miles per gallon. So that is pretty cool. That's pretty insane. Now, three-year change is up. I'm sorry. One-year change is up 6.3%. Five-year, three-year change is down 5.6%. And the five-year change is down 30.6%. And the average value is $1.3 million. Now, my question to you is, why is it down? I think there's a couple reasons for this. If you look at the other two cars that have come came out at the same time, the Porsche 918 and the Ferrari LaFerrari, again, a horrible name, uh, the Porsche is still doing okay. It has depreciated a little bit lately. I think it's going to start to go back up again. The LaFerrari has done really well. I think the P1, the issue is, is that it was – a one-off car at the time, like its body was totally separate from the other McLarens. But then the 720S came out, and it looked so much like the P1. And basically, the exclusivity of the P1 was diluted by having the quote-unquote base cars look more like the P1. Uh, but then also, I think uh, you can get the same performance from a Tesla. So I, I think the performance doesn't speak as much as maybe it did when it launched. Uh, so I think that's a couple things. Also, I have met two McLaren owners recently that are not happy with their McLarens. Let me give you some specifics. So if you're a McLaren owner and you love your McLarens, please shoot me a note because I need to get the other side of the coin here. Uh, one particular uh, collector, he has, I think it's a 7570, and the servo in the front seat went out when the seat was kind of up close to the steering wheel. Well, he can't drive the car anymore because McLaren doesn't make that servo anymore and there's not a replacement one and they're not going to make another one. So he can't drive the car because he's too close to the steering wheel. So he literally hasn't driven it like in a year and a half because he can't get the seat fixed. And then another collector, he ended up selling all his McLarens because I guess all the body panels are put on with a super, super strong adhesive versus being bolted down and his body panels kept coming loose on his 720. So he felt like, you know, the client, the customer 
should not be the test bed. Everything should be done prior to selling the car, not fix it, you know, once it's out there on the market. So he got out of the McLaren business in its entirety, uh, which I thought was really interesting. So if you're a McLaren guy or gal and you love your McLaren, please shoot me a note, shoot me an email, Greg at the Collector Car Podcast or G Stanley at RM Sotheby's. Let me know your experiences so I get the other side of the story. Those were unsolicited, and uh, you know, I'd love to hear your story. So as always, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. <laughs>